Tonight we're starting our series um, in the book of Jonah. We're going to be going through Jonah for the next several weeks. Old Testament book. It's an amazing Old Testament book in what's considered the minor prophets, right? When they, we say minor prophet, small little book. That's, that's what minor means. It's one of the small books about the prophets, right? And um, this week and next week, we're going to be going through an introduction, an introduction of the book of Jonah. So are you guys ready to dive into our series together? This is where you sort of nod, give me like a polite yes. Yeah, good, good, great. I am going to pull a fast one on you, though, and have you turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans. We're going to start in the book of Romans tonight to start our series in Jonah, all right? So turn to the book of Romans. That's actually in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John took an axe and killed the Romans. That's how I remember it, okay? So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. That's how I remember the order. We're going to be in Romans chapter 10, and I promise you'll see by the end of this how this connects to Jonah. Right? And how this is, we are laying a foundation for everything that we are going to do here in the series of Jonah and through the book of Jonah. So Romans chapter 10. Let's get into it together. We're going to start in verse 9 and go through verse 15. Here's what the Word of God says. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So the book of Jonah starts out as a story of God calling an unwilling prophet to go to a foreign country, to a foreign people that do not belong to the Israelites, calls this unwilling prophet to go to this place to preach to them, to evangelize to them, to call them to repentance. And the start of this book, that's what it is. It's a call to preach. But at the end of the day, when we think of the book of Jonah, what we think about is the compassion of God, the mercy of God. We think of God being a God of all nations, a God being a God of not just Israel, but the Gentiles as well. That's what we see is that the central theme of the book of Jonah is this idea of a compassionate and saving God. I'm going to say that again. The main theme of the book of Jonah is the concept of a compassionate and saving God. And I feel that it would be an absolute shame. It would be a misery, a disgrace upon this preaching ministry right here on Thursday nights if I didn't walk you through the concept of having a saving and compassionate God. If I didn't walk you through what it was like to know this saving and compassionate God. Like it would be wrong of me for the next several weeks to walk you through the book of Jonah and how he's supposed to be going through to the Ninevites that they might be saved without giving you a chance not only to be saved, but giving you a chance to to settle into that salvation and be affirmed in it and to know it and assured in it. It would be wrong of me to assume that 
that you're in a place that's ready to see a disgraced prophet who's unwilling to go preach that salvation to other people. I want to start with making sure that we have that salvation. I want to start with making sure we understand that salvation. I want to start with making sure that we understand the compassionate God who gives us that salvation. That's one of the reasons why we're starting in Romans tonight. I'll connect it a bit more later, but I think you got the idea now, right, that this message is titled Salvation. The message is titled Salvation, and I want to go through three things, three questions. Now, I'm going to say these questions out loud, and before I get into them, I want you to think, how would I answer them? Not me, how would you, right? How would you answer them? If I were to ask this out loud, do you feel like you would have a good, articulate answer? Do you think you could say it to somebody else, all right? So salvation, the first question we're going to ask, why do I need it? Why do I need it? Why do I need salvation? Look back at the passage with me tonight. We're going to read through just the first few verses, and I want you to see how many times you see the word saved, right? So verse 9 here in chapter 10 Romans, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's an implication here. It's talking about how to be saved which implies that we should want to be saved, which implies that there's something that we should want to be saved from, saved into. And so if we're looking at this passage and we're trying to get the context and we're just diving into it like we are here, we're just jumping right into a passage, one of our first questions is, well, why would I want that? If if I'm not a Christian, if I haven't been raised in a Christian culture, if I'm in one of those unreached people groups, right, and I were to go up to them and be like, if you call in the name of the Lord, you will be saved, their first question is going to be like, saved from what? Why would I need to be saved? So we should be able to answer that question as well. Why do you need salvation? If you're a Christian, why? What did God save you from? What was so bad about your life before? How is your life any different now? Well, if you read the book of Romans at any point, Paul spends like the first eight chapters telling you why you need to be saved and goes through it. Chapter three, he talks about how we all fall short of the glory of God. And then four and five, he goes through in the Old Testament. We could go through a lot of that tonight, but actually I just want to go to the source. I want to go to the source where Paul's getting a lot of this. And so we're going to be going around our Bible a little bit here, um, but this is important. So each one of these, we are turning to our Bibles tonight to actually see them. So let's go ahead and turn to the book of Genesis real quick. Very front of your Bible, okay? Book of Genesis, we're going to be in chapter 3. Some of you see where I'm going with this. All right, a lot of you are familiar with the story of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are created. Satan is the sneaky little snake, comes forward, tempts Eve. Did God really say this? Eve's like, I should eat this. Gives it to Adam. Adam eats it, right? Sin. That's the story. It's a story that if you grew up in a Christian culture, almost every single American can actually tell you that exact story. They know the story of Adam and Eve. 
but it's to really pick up on the particulars that helps us understand why exactly we need to be saved. So that's what's going on in Genesis 3 right here. That's what we see. If you're, if you're looking at it right now, you sort of see the very beginning of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty, and he shows up on the scene. Um, they do the thing they're not supposed to do. They eat of the fruit that, that God said not to eat of, and, and God finds out, right? Not that he didn't already know, but he gives them a chance to tell him, and he finds out, and then he starts dealing out these curses, and he, if you look there in verse 14 with me, first he, he talks to Satan, curses Satan, right? Says to him what it's going to be like for him for the rest of eternity. And then in verse 16 there, he talks to the woman and says, here's the things you're going to have to deal with because of this. And then in verse 17, he talks to Adam and says, here's the things you're going to have to deal with, right? And we're talking about everything from it being hard to work the ground, to having pain in childbearing, to um, having strife in this life, um, to having a wills against one another, a division. I mean, we're talking about everything that comes from sin here. And we see in here this promise of the gospel, which we'll get to in a little bit. But then there's this final thing that we sort of miss sometimes. When we're thinking of the story of Adam and Eve, and it's, they got kicked out of the garden. Not only did they get these curses, but, but God's like, you're no longer with me. You're removed from me. Look with me. Verse 22. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him, sent Adam, out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that churned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So what God says is Adam can't have eternal life like this. Adam can't have eternal life in a broken state of sinfulness. Adam can't be like this. Lest he becomes like that, lest he desires more, lest he desires to be like this forever, he is no longer able to be with me because he is sinful, he is cursed, he is broken, and so he is thrown out of the garden. All right. Adam's thrown out of the garden. Okay. Starting to get maybe an idea of why we need to be saved, sort of, right? But what does Adam have to do with us? And I think that uh, many Christians would say, and maybe all of you would agree with the statement, that we are sinful because Adam sinned. How many of you would say you believe that, you've confessed that, or uh, you, know, you go to a church that, that has preached that, right? We are sinful because Adam has sinned, the, the doctrine of original sin, right? Because he did this, now all of us pay the consequence of what Adam chose to do. And most of us at some point, if we're actually critical of what the Bible might say, we're like, why? Like, why does one dude thousands of years ago impact what I might have to offer to the Lord and how I might walk with him and live with him? Why is it that Adam's sin caused me to not know God? Why do I have to bear the burden of a man I've never met and a man that hasn't existed for thousands of years? Why do I have to deal with that? And if you haven't asked that question, I want you to because I want you to ask the hard things of Scripture. I want you to push against it, and I want you to see that God has answers for all of it. I want you to put it to the test to see the real truth behind it. And so think critically of those things. 
Ask those questions and find the answers. And here's the answers. These two aren't points on the screen, but here's two reasons really think about why Adam sinning affects us. And the first one is this. It's called federal headship. Okay, big word, federal, like the federal bank. Okay, federal headship. This whole concept is that Adam represents us. That what Adam does, he does on behalf of us. That he represents us as a human race. And when he sinned, we were collectively sinning because he was our representation. We see this often. Actually, here in America, our entire political system is based on this concept. Right? We elect people who are meant to represent us. And so they go to the government gatherings, the Congress, and they vote on behalf of us. And even in the presidential elections coming up, president elections coming up later this year, right? The Electoral College, the whole concept is that we vote and based on our votes, then the Electoral College is sent to make the votes for the president. And that determines it. Like we have someone representing us as some form of federal headship in order that we might be represented and shown. And you guys know what it's like when it seems like an embarrassment, right? You guys know what it's like when somebody that's supposed to represent us doesn't represent us well. But it's not just political parties, group of friends. How many of you ever walked into another church or walked into a, you know, a gathering at school and one person that's part of this group irritates you, hurts you, says something to you, and you immediately associate with the whole group. That's called federal headship. Ambassadors, same thing. We as a country send ambassadors to other countries so that they would represent the will of our country. And they would represent the, the um, delegations of our country. So that's federal headship. And I'm not just talking about this like, oh yeah, that's what it means. It's in scripture, right? So if you were to turn to Romans, if you were to turn to Romans just um, a bit later, Romans 5, um, a bit later, a lot later after Genesis, I guess, a bit earlier than chapter 10. Um, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, and I'll just read this one for you. Romans 5, 12 says this, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, right? Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Let me read that again. Sin came into the world through one man, Adam. Death came through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Meaning that when Adam sinned, we all sinned. Because he is our federal headship. He represents us. He is our ambassador to the human race. He was the one who was representing mankind to God. And he chose to sell us into that. Now, I feel like this is a hard doctrine to understand sometimes. And I just recently was reading through Romans and like this thing just like clicked, like oh, how have I never really seen this before? And so I want to talk to you about the second concept. It's, it's the same concept, just worded differently and allows us to see it from a different point of view. But it's this idea of being held captive. Instead of federal headship, it's this concept of being held captive or being sold into slavery. Turn to Romans 6. Let me show you what I mean. Romans 6. We're going to be in verse 16. 
So Romans 6 says this, 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So Paul's talking about like who you choose to obey is who your master is. That's what he's setting up here, right? Like if you present yourself as someone who is obedient to, to sin, you are a slave to sin. Verse 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. So what does Paul say about the church in Rome? He's talking to Christians. He's talking to men and women like us. Those that know Jesus, those that claim Christ, those that say they are children of God, and he is saying that every single one of them, right? Most of them, they weren't born into any kind of slavery, right? We're talking about Roman citizens. Roman citizens were not slaves. Born into slavery, not a thing for them. But he says, you were once slaves to sin. Therefore, showing us that before we know Christ, before we have come to know him as Lord and Savior, we were slaves to sin. And how did we get there? Our father Adam sold us into sin. He sold us into it. What happens when a slave has a child? Their child is born into slavery. Our country had a terrible experience with that, right? Our country had a terrible time in which we had slavery exist in it. And when a slave had a child, that child also became a slave to the master. No matter what that child did, right? That, that like the concept of picking cotton or something out of the ground, like the concept of harvesting, that's not a bad concept, right? Like to go out to the field, to pick something good, that it might be used for culture and society. The concept itself is not bad whatsoever. But even the good things like that are terrible because it's being done unto the glory of sin. It's being done unto the glory of slavery. It's being done. Every action is because it is an action taken from someone that is sold to slavery, right? And so just like that, we too were slaves to sin. Our father Adam sold us into it. And every child that has come from that has been born into slavery to sin. We've been held captive. So if, if you were to write an answer, like, because we are slaves to sin, right? Why do I need it? Because we are slaves to sin. And I know that you feel it. I know that you do. I hear it from you guys. I see it in you guys. I counsel it in you guys. But time and time again, we all come to a point where you feel that shame. You feel that guilt. You feel that disgust of doing things that you don't want to do, yet you do them anyways. For many of us, it reminds us of when we were slaves to sin. And for some of us, we've never been freed. We've never been set free. For some of you, you've never felt the freedom from the slavery of sin because you've never turned your eyes to Christ. And for others of us, this is what we like to do. 
Anyone that's actually given their life to Christ, there's times in our life in which, for some reason, even though Jesus Christ has come and he's broken the chains, he's taken them off of us and says, you are no longer a slave to sin, you are a slave to righteousness, right? You are dead to sin, you are alive in me. Yet, there are times in our life when we like to head back to the chains. We like to put them back on our wrists and we like to pretend like we're serving our old master still. We fall into those things. We fall into those actions. And so I'm gonna guess that I'm talking to every person in this room right now with either you having never been freed from sin or you falling back into that captivity. And I don't want that to be what the rest of this semester is. I want life change. I want life change in this ministry. I want to see God do amazing things through you. I want to see people free from their sins. I want to see people from death to life. I want to see people that have gone back to the chains to release them for the last time. I want to see people who have a fervency for Christ because they understand that He is the one that allowed them to be sold from slavery of sin to slavery of righteousness. Freedom, true freedom. And so, I think we understand now just a little bit of what it means, so why we need to be saved. Why do you need to be saved? Because you've been a, you've been a, sin, you've been a, a slave to sin. Because we all are. So, if we need to be saved, the question is, how do I get it? That's our second question. How do I get it? I told you I want you thinking about these answers, right? We're moving a little quicker now. I told you I want you thinking about these answers. How would I answer this? If someone said, how do I get salvation? What would you say to them before we had read this passage together, okay? What would you say to them? Would you have a clear way to articulate it? Or you yourself, if you've never been saved, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, you might be asking right now, how do I get it? You've been talking about how I'm captive of this thing. How do I receive it? Well, let's look back at the text Real quick, Romans chapter 10. We're going to take it just like line by line in verse 9 here. How do you get saved? Well, first it says, because if you confess with your mouth. That's the first one. How do I get it? How do I get salvation? You confess with your mouth. Now notice that this is an action. right? To speak is to do. This isn't something that you just think. This is something to be done. This is something to be declared. That's the concept. All right, so I'm going to declare something. If I want to be saved, I'm going to declare something. And the next part of the statement is that you are going to declare that Jesus is Lord. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Now, here's where I love the connection of where we were just at. So the Greek word here for Lord is kyrios. And if you're... I don't think any of you are Greek nerds, but if you happen to be a Greek nerd, kyrios is a really cool word because it is the concept of what Jesus is to us. And it's a word that envelops the idea of not only a Lord, but the idea of a master. Now, do you see the connection? See, we had a master. Our master was death and sin. Our master was sin that led to death. And what the statement is, is that if you want to be saved, you need to declare that you have a new master. 
You need to declare that you have a new Lord. You need to say it out loud. You need to say that, no, I am no longer a slave to the master of sin, but I am under the master of Jesus Christ, my Lord, my master, my Kyrios. That is who he is. That's the first part of it. The first part of salvation is simply to say, Jesus is my master. Not sin, not Satan, not death, but life for all eternity with him. That's what we declare. Jesus is Lord, but that's like the first part, right? And then there's the second part. Look back at it with me again. We're, we're still in verse nine here, right? If you confess from your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and here's the, here's the next one, and believe in your heart. How do I get it? You believe in your heart. And this is so crucial. This is so crucial for us because this is part, that like this part of the passage shows us that our salvation has to be so much more than what we just say or do. Our salvation has to be so much more than what we just say or what we do. It needs to penetrate our heart. And like according to scripture, if you want a definition of heart, it's not just your emotions. It's not just your feeling. According to scripture, your heart is the very center of your being. It is the center of all operations of human life. Okay, everything you do extends from the heart. All operations of human life, the center of your being. Like if we could have a word for what is this, what is me, heart would have to be in there biblically. We would have to have some kind of idea of the center of the will. And what it's saying is that we need to believe something in there, meaning that this belief that we're about to say has to be so fundamental that it changes the core of who we are, that it changes the core of how we act and how we think and how we feel and how we view the world. So we have to believe this thing. It has to change us. And what is it that we have to believe? What has to be at the very core of it? It's that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by God. That's what it says right there at the very end of verse nine, right? That you are to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You have to believe that God did the saving work in your life. You have to believe that it wasn't you that raised Jesus from the dead. It was God. It wasn't you and it's not you that has the power to overcome death. It's God. It's God and God alone who has the power to free you from slavery. It's God and God alone who sends his son to break the chains off of us and to bring us to know him and call him Lord and Master. It's God by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. God's grace given to us through the faith that we place in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Like to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead is to believe that Jesus is more than just a master to follow. He's your literal Savior. He's the one who made your salvation possible in the first place. He's the one who overcomes sin. And he overcame sin by dying on the cross for our sins. Dying on the cross to atone for our sins, to bring us to God again. He was buried and he was given life again, raised from the dead on the third day that we might have life. To believe that he's been raised from the dead is to believe the miraculous truth that your 
saved by grace through faith. And I'm not just saying this to you, right? Look at verse 10 with me. Verse 10 says that for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So like your belief, let's break down just that sentence. If you're looking at verse 10 there, break down just that sentence. Your belief is what justifies you, right? So when we're talking justified, we're talking like a court term. When we say justified, like your belief justifies you, it's what makes you right before God in the eternal courtroom where God is the judge and you're on trial. God is the judge, you're on trial, and your belief in Christ is what justifies you to cause God to say, saved, innocent. That is, that is where it starts. It starts in our heart and in our belief. But then if you look there, it says, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. And so that shows us that our confession is what confirms it. With our heart, we are justified. And with the confirmation that comes from our mouth, we are saved. God says, yes. See, it's one thing for me to believe that I'm declared innocent by Jesus to a judge. And another thing for me to tell him that I believe it. You guys have been in many situations where you have believed something and not said it. Right? And those people, whatever situation you're in, walk away with a completely different understanding of what you might actually be believing because you never confessed it even though your heart moves for it. The mouth shows the confirmation what the heart believes. And so we are saved by belief in the heart, confession from the mouth. And if you don't believe me, you can just ask Jesus. Matthew 12, verse 34. Matthew 12, 34, he says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. If we truly and authentically believe, that will be confirmed by what we say. It will be confirmed by our actions. All right. We got one last point. It's a pretty quick point. I want to take a moment. Just told you, why do you need to be saved? I just told you how to, how to get salvation. Right? You confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. I want to give you a moment. I want to give you a moment in two different ways. If there are any of you in this room that have never put that stake in the ground, you have never said, Jesus Christ is my Lord. You have never confessed it with your mouth. You have never sincerely believed in your heart. You've never understood that you are a slave to sin and that you need freedom, that you've been sold into it. And now you need someone to come break the chains that you might be free. Like if that's you, I'm gonna give you a moment to confess it right now to the Lord. I'm gonna give you a moment to come to life. I'm gonna give you a moment to step into salvation and call Jesus your Kyrios, your Lord and Master but I also know that I'm talking to several in the room that have done that, but you're feeling that you stepped away. Maybe not in your whole life, but maybe there's a part of your life you don't like to turn to, you don't like to see, you don't like people to know about because you feel shame about it. But it's one of those moments in your life that you're going back to the chains and you're just putting them on your wrist because you feel like home there. And you're not desiring Jesus to have freed you from it. I want to give you a moment to just confess it to the Lord, to remind you that you are saved, you are free. I asked him to bring up some music. This is not spiritual. This allows you to reflect. just allows you to focus for a minute. Take a minute right now, and I'm gonna pray for each one of you. Just take a moment to yourself. Get your thoughts together before I pray.
if you've never given your life to the Lord before, if you are still right now just a a slave to sin, living for your own glory and the glory of your master, paying the wage of death, if that's you, I want you just in your heart to pray with me. It's not a magical prayer. It's not the words that matter, but it's the heart posture that matters. If that's you, just, just pray. Pray in your heart alongside me. Say, Father, I know that you have sent Christ to free me. I know that he died on the cross for my sins that I might be freed. I know that he's been raised to give me life with you for all eternity. I know that I am a child of God now because of this. And I know that I belong to you and I do not belong to a master of sin. Lord, would you free me? Give me assurance of this salvation. Lord, would you teach me what it means to call you Lord? Would you teach me what it means to repent and put my sin behind me? Would you teach me what it means to follow after you? Do that. And if you're on the other side of this tonight, you think of the places that you're willingly going back into slavery, you're willingly going back into sin, would you pray alongside me right now? Father, I repent. I turn away from my sin. I put it behind me. Lord, the chains you've already broken, I take them off my wrists. I set them down. Jesus, I follow after you. Lord, purify me again. Make me white as snow. Renew your spirit in me. Lord, I'm sorry for what I've done. But I am so thankful for what you've done. I give my life to you again and again, reaffirming what you did so long ago to save me. Reaffirming it, repenting again of my sin, Lord, and following after you all the more. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. We got just a little bit more of our message to go through. But the reason I wanted to do this here is because I want you to see that it doesn't stop with this. It doesn't stop with giving your life to Christ. It doesn't stop with going to his feet again. It's not where it's ever meant to stop. It's not where the Lord intended it for it to stop. But there's more after it. There's a whole third point when it comes to salvation. And the third question is, what do I do with it? Why do I need it? How do I get it? And what do I do with it? We see it here back in Romans chapter 10. Verse 11 says, Scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. You don't have shame if you believe in him. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all. We're going to hit that a lot when it comes to Jonah. We're going to understand he's the Lord of all. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on him, in the name of the Lord will be saved. But then here's the kicker. Verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? 
how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So what are you supposed to do with it? What are you supposed to do with your salvation? You're supposed to preach it. You're supposed to preach it. That's, that's the last point. That's the answer, right? What do I do with my salvation? I preach it. Let's just break down that, that one verse in 14 and understand. How then, it says in verse 14, how then will they call on him who they have not believed? So people can't call on Jesus if they don't know to believe in him. We just talked about that in the unreached people groups, right? They can't know Jesus unless they are told of him. How are they to believe in him if they have never heard? People can't believe in Jesus if they're not hearing about him. How are they to hear without someone preaching? So people aren't going to hear about him unless someone is actually talking about him. Proclaiming, preaching means heralding it, announcing it, town crier in the middle of the square, declaring it to all those around them. Verse 15, how are they to preach unless they are sent? People aren't going to talk about him unless they're commissioned and sent to do so. People are not going to go unless they're told to go. This certainly applies to missions. And when we say missions, we mean reaching unreached people groups, and that's what we're praying for, is that there would be those that are commissioned, sent specifically to unreached people groups, to the glory of God among the nations. But commissioning happens also at the time of your salvation to declare God's life, light, and salvation to all. I'm not saying that your neighbor is the mission field. I'm saying that your neighbor is the standard in which you're supposed to be living. I'm saying that a Christian telling other people about Christ, that's, that's the standard, guys. That's not something extra you're called to. That's who you are. And so I want us to see that this passage, I mean, Paul's talking to, to the Romans, right? He's, he's talking to this group of people. He's not assuming all of them are going to do what he's doing. He's not assuming that all of them are going to go out and plant a billion churches, okay? But he is telling them and reminding them that you need to be sent. And so this is me sending you. This is me commissioning you. Some of you, I pray someday we commission you to the nations. But all of you need to be commissioned right now to just preach the gospel to whomever you may, whomever the Lord puts in your life. Like I'm sending you in Ambrose and Augie and Scott and Blackhawk and your, your workplaces to share Jesus Christ and bring people here who need to know him. I'm calling you, each and every one of you, to, to not let Coram Deo be a bubble. The worst thing you can do is come to Corumdale and just be in the safe little bubble and no one ever knows what your joy is and what your experience is and who your Savior is except you. We will not be a ministry like that. We will not stand for that. This ministry has had amazing things happen to it in the last couple of years, but it's time to go further. It's time to change it. It's time to grow. It's time to stop just being safe and it's time to do more things together. We're in an amazing spot to be able to do that. 
we need to go. We need to be sent. We need to tell other people about what God has done for us. We need to tell other people that they're slaves to sin and they can be freed like we've been freed. And you know what? We need to tell them that they have access to it. All they have to do is have a conversation with you. All they have to do is walk into a church on a Sunday morning. The access that they have to freedom is so easy. All we have to do is open the door for them. I told the leaders last Thursday, and this is my, this is my ending here. I told the leaders last Thursday that I had two words for our ministry. Um, I'm not a guy who comes up with words every new year. You know, it's just not me. But I did have two words for our ministry that I'm going to be focusing on in the book of Jonah. And they were purify and evangelize. Guys, I want you purified. I want you loving the Lord. I want you serving him. I want you joyful because of who he is in your life. And I pray that tonight was the start of that, but I also want you to evangelize. I want you to bring people here that need Jesus. I want you to invite people to see group. I want you to go to your campuses and your workplaces and pray for people and open the Bible with them. I don't want you to fail like Jonah did. And that's how this connects to Jonah. If there's someone in the Bible you want to be like, it's not Jonah. You're about to see next week, we're going to start with it. Jonah's an anti-hero. He's not a man you want to follow. And this is how Jonah starts. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. God says to Jonah, there's people that need to repent. There's people that need to know me. There's people that need to turn to me. Jonah's being commissioned. He's being sent, just like we are. And what does it say? But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish and from the presence of the Lord. Jonah disobeyed. Jonah didn't want to do what the Lord had called him to do. Jonah didn't love the compassion of the Lord. We're going to hear that time and time again in Jonah. But I'm telling you right now, my goal is for you not to be a failure like Jonah was. My goal is for you to want to do it right away, to want to serve the Lord faithfully, and to treat him like your Lord and Master. That's my goal for you. That's my goal for us and all that we do. So here's what I'm going to do. Normally, I give you a time of reflection. I'm not going to tonight. One, because I'm going to pray for you. Two, because I went long. Three, because I gave you a chance to turn to the Lord just a few minutes ago. Father, I pray for our time in Jonah. I pray that you would just shape this ministry to be amazing for your glory in the next several weeks. Lord, I know there's so much that you have for the people in this room and the ones that aren't here. I pray for those that aren't here tonight, Lord. I don't know where they are. I don't know why they're not here. Think of the ones that are usually here, Lord, that aren't. Lord, I pray you bring them back. I pray that you use us to bring them back, Lord. I pray that we would be a people that, that stand up for knowing you and, and, and having others know you, Lord. I pray that it wouldn't be just in these walls. And I ask you, Lord, humbly, would you speak through your word? And through me this semester? Would you speak through the other preachers that are coming in? 
Lord, would you speak through our small group leaders? Father, I don't, I don't care if we lose 20 people this semester as long as the ones that remain are absolutely sold out for you. Lord, what you've done with just one person and 12 disciples has shaped the world. May we not fail to see that you can do anything you so desire, Lord. We just need to be faithful. You, did, you had your will with Jonah, even when he was unfaithful. I pray that we would be found faithful to do your will and that we would desire it. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.